Welcome to another episode of Civic Cyber. I am your host, Ramses Jai. Yes, he is. And they call me Q Ward. Mm-hmm. Um, stick around. We've got a great show lined up for you today. We're going to share some uh, some things you might not know about. Um, if you are not a black person, growing up black may seem like a foreign concept to you. And that's okay, because again, that's not your reality. But there are some things that happen that shape our reality as adults that we feel like if we share them, um, maybe we'll find a way to relate to each other a little bit more easily, more readily. So we're going to uh, take, take a moment today to make sure that we discuss how some experiences have, can, and do shape the lives of people who are born black in this country and maybe even some ideas on how you can address those ask about those experiences and um, hopefully we can create a little bit more empathy um, as we relate to each other also we're going to tell a story about how civic cipher came to be wow someone reached out to us and was like you know kind of asking how we came up with the idea for the show and we haven't told this story in this space and so um we're going to take some time to let you know the origins of this show why we think it's important and what we hope the show will accomplish in long form we kind of give bits and pieces here and there um but today we're going to lay it out in full detail for you so that you will have it all um and then of course our way black history fact we're going to be talking about the urban league um, you may be familiar with the NAACP, but today we're going to celebrate the Urban League. Uh, but first and foremost, we are going to discuss some ebony excellence. How's that sound, cute? It sounds very exciting, shall we? We shall. So today's ebony excellence is sponsored by Hip Hop Weekly Media. Um, and uh, we got a little tidbit from JP Morgan Wealth Management. Uh, as it turns out, black women are the fastest growing demographic of entrepreneurs in the U.S. with nearly 2.7 million businesses nationwide. So shout out to black women one time. Uh, The number of businesses owned by black women grew 50% from 2014 to 2019, representing the highest growth rate of any female demographic. Black females accounted for 42% of all women who operated a new business during that time and represented 36% of all black employers. And they're not letting up in the U.S. 17% of black women are in the process of starting a new business compared to 10% of white women and 15% of white men. Motives for creating a new business include producing a source of income or following a dream. So um, we always want to make sure that we're showing our support. Amen. To black women. Um, and, you know, as a side note. Uh, and and. A personal experience. Um, I have a sister. You know, this is my the closest lens that I have outside of our producer Maggie, uh, Miss Ms. Maggie, aka Maggie. Be knowing she knew her uh, perspective. Uh, my own little sister um, once worked for a doctor, and you know, my sister is an actual smart person, like on paper, a brilliant mind, like for real. And I remember the way that this doctor mistreated my sister and devalued her ideas and so forth. And so my sister now works for herself because of that. So I could definitely see this reality taking shape for black women across the country, traditionally, that 
undervalues them. So shout out to black women one more time for our ebony excellence. Um, and that is a great segue into what we're talking about today. Um, it just kind of felt important and timely based on some conversations we we're having this week, uh, Q and, and myself and uh, Maggie, about what it means to be, you know, a black man, black person in this country and some of our traumas and insecurities and things that have helped shaped us as adults that started in our childhood. And so, um, you know, there's some crazy things that, you know, if you're not black, you might not be aware of these things that are specific to black people or that are specific to me, an individual, but only could happen to me as a result of me being black, as a result of me, as you'll find out, not having straight hair. Um, and uh, I, th I think that it's worth sticking around for. So I want to tell a quick story um, to help set the stage. So, you know, I was born in uh, Compton, California. Um, I lived there the first part of my life. Um, that, of course, very much shaped how I viewed and still view the world. So a uh, quick story there. Um, when I was younger, there was a lot of violence there. Of course, it was in the 80s. So <laughs> there was a lot of drugs, and that sort of stuff. Um, I had a friend. Um, I had two friends, Keith and David. Keith ended up dying. Remember, we're kids, little kids. Um, Keith ended up getting shot uh, and he died in front of his house in the street. I remember that. Um, and I remember everybody screaming. Um, and it was kind of a sad day, but I didn't really get to process that. And I remember thinking, dang, um, I hope I make it to 20. Now, most people, when they're that young, they hope that they make it to 18 or they, they anticipate turning 18 because then they'll be in a grown up or 21 because then they can be a real grown up or 25 because they can rent a car or whatever, whatever age it is. But I thought 20 was the magic number because where I lived, whenever people talked about death. Uh, or these crazy things happen, they would always be like, oh, such and such, he was only 13 or 17 or 15, and the, the teen part stood out, and that meant that it was a tragedy. So because I knew how numbers worked, I thought 20 was the magic number, and if I could just make it to 20, then I will have made it. <laughs> it's crazy. Um, and so uh, that very much shaped my life. You know, I was in college when I turned 20, and 20 was when I let my hair started to grow. I felt that I was going to be myself and every other day beyond that was a bonus. Now, of course, I moved out of Compton when I was very young. Um, and I knew that life was not just, okay, you're born to die, you know, but that number stuck with me. That in mind, when I first came to Arizona, um, I had a friend, his name was Kevin, for those that are really into hip hop culture that, um, watch a lot of interviews you may know the name bootleg kev well i met kevin when he was three years old um and i was seven um and so we grew up together the reason he's super into hip-hop is because of me um and uh you know i love kevin i always did love kevin and kevin was very fortunate um his parents had money and they believed that you can buy more than one Christmas present for your kid at Christmas. And so Kevin would get all these Christmas presents every year for his, for his birthday and Easter holidays, like all this stuff. So Kevin had mad toys, right? As you're growing up, 
that's fun. You know, and every time I'd go and hang out with Kevin at his house, um, I'd bring my video games and later I'd bring my CD books and that sort of stuff. But Kev had toys. He was uh, a few years younger than me, so he was still on that. Well, um, after, you know, a couple years of knowing each other and playing with each other, Kevin's toys would always go missing just because he had too many of them. And there was this gripping fear that I experienced every time Kevin's, one of Kevin's toys went missing. And instead of me thinking, okay, he's a child who lost his toy, it's in the couch, it's in the back of the car, something like that. I was so worried that his mom was going to think I stole it because I understood at that young age that there was a stereotype and a stigma of being black um, that meant that people assume that black people steal, right? And of course, I never stole anything, but I would always be so, I would, I would rush to help him find the toy and I would pray that I wasn't the one who found it. Because if I'm the one who found it, then they could conclude that I hid it in that location, right? And it wasn't until years later, I'm talking my early 30s, when I finally told Kevin's mom about that. I was like, oh, I used to hate when Kevin lost his toys. And she, and I told her the story I just told you. Probably she broke her heart. Broke her heart. She cried. Her and, and her husband, Kev's dad, um, Charlie, they were like, yo, how could you ever think that we would ever think that you would do that? And I'm like, I, I anyway. That's one story. We got a few to get off. It sucks that that was a thing for you, though. Yeah, really was. Because at that age, you had to understand that you lived in a world that mostly did view black people that way. And just had to hope that this family was different. It had to be really like trapped by that fear. Yeah, man. I, that they, sucks. Yeah. But so you are from a different place. Yeah, I'm from a city they call Motown, mm, the Motor City, if you will. Talk about it. Uh, Detroit, Michigan. That's right. Uh, at one point, the world's motor capital, maybe still. Um, at one point, the world's murder capital. Mm. Um, a very, very unproud but true statistic. Um, and in the 80s, when I grew up, the early 90s, when I was in Detroit, uh, the black population exceeded 80%. And if you can imagine being somewhere where the black population is 80%, you can spend your entire life never seeing anyone that isn't black. So that was my truth. Uh, a very, very interesting thing about our relationship or our people's relationship with law enforcement is that not only was everybody in my city black, but my mother's brother and my father's brother, Detroit police officers for my entire childhood. Mm -hmm. Um, one in detective, one an inspector. So respected, like career long police officers. And then my uncle Harold married a Detroit police officer. So we were really, uh, kind of ingrained. So seeing law enforcement was very normal for me. Mm -hmm. And because everyone was black, it wasn't until I was an adult that I had some of those, oh, this is different experiences with law enforcement. But being a child in Detroit, um, especially growing up not wealthy. A lot of things that are true about growing up a black child in this country never dawned upon me until once again, I grew up. All of my neighbors were in the same financial situation as my mom, all of my classmates. So not only were we all black, but we were all poor. So it wasn't like people were stunting on you and 
Now, as I started to grow up, I, I would notice that my friends who had both parents at home, they had more things than I did, right? Name brand shoes and clothes. Right. Um, but just the way that my world got to be shaped around black people was actually really cool. But there was a duality. My uncle, my, my mother's brother, by the nature of being an inspector in the Detroit Police Department and then marrying a, a Detroit police officer, two parents with what were considered good jobs, they did well. Mm -hmm. So I did sometimes get to see how the other side lived, right? You would go to spend a night over there and you would want that night to turn into a week or a month or mom, can I just stay here? Because they have a swimming pool mm -hmm. and a pantry. I don't even get into a pantry when you're a young black kid and you've never seen anything like it. Like that was what would be a special occasion grocery store trip for me was just every like Tuesday for, yeah. you know, for their house. Got extra food outside yeah. the refrigerator. Yeah. <laughs> like lots of it. You know, all the snacks, you know, anything you could possibly want. Um, I remember the first time my heart fluttered was because I saw Tina Turner. So imagine being very much a child. And thinking that the most glorious thing you've ever seen is Tina Turner, <laughs> right? So that's what growing up surrounded by black people does to you subconsciously, right? That Tina Turner and all her glory, it couldn't get any better than that. And I, I'm, I'm proud of that to this day. My first crush in my whole life was Tina Turner. Um, and, you know, they later made a movie about her. I, I bought the first tickets probably printed. <laughs> like I, I stood in line to see what's love got to do. And I learned a lot about her life and career that I didn't know. And that was a little jarring. But once again, this is me going to see my childhood crushes movie. Mm -hmm. um, simultaneously, however, and forgive me for saying your name if you ever hear this, because I have not seen her since I was maybe six years old. But Mary Kay, Mary Kay was my cousin Leslie and Natalie's friend. And Mary Kay was white. She was the second person that I had a crush on. Mm -hmm. And mostly because if there's a such thing as not seeing color, four-year-old kids playing in the swimming pool. It, this wasn't a romantic crush because we were four, but I thought she was pretty and she wasn't my cousin. And that was kind of all that mattered, mm -hmm. right? That she was white is something I think about today that absolutely didn't matter when I was four and five years old playing in my uncle's swimming pool with her. Yeah. And it clearly didn't matter to her either because when other family members would come over and she was there, her interactions with them were just as warm and just as friendly. And clearly her parents had to think it was okay mm -hmm. because every summer or every holiday that we were at uncle Harold's in the pool, she was there too. Mm -hmm. So just a really, really interesting dynamic. And I'll touch more on how that shifted. Um, a little later on in the show, but growing up in an all black city, because 82% of a city being black, that city's black. Yeah, real black. Right. I had a couple teachers that weren't, but even most of my teachers, most of the adults and children that I saw from preschool to graduation were black. Mm -hmm. It was a bit of a utopia and kind of a really, really dope experience to grow up in. However, going to college forever changed the entire scope of how I saw being black in this country so i want to i want you to tell that story um let me get this one off real quick now i'm from california we're all mixed up over there then i moved to arizona even more mixed up you know what i mean not or, or even less mixed or up. the opposite there's not a lot of uh, black folks in arizona um, in phoenix um but 
Um, another thing that happened to me growing up is, you know, I, I get that you listen to us on the radio, so you probably haven't seen how we look, but I have hair on my head. It's a big old afro. I've had it for always. And, you know, it's, my hair just grows that way. This is what it does. So I'm very proud of it, and I don't cut it because it's like it's my way of kind of proclaiming who I am, who I was meant to be. Um, nature's expressing herself through my hair. God is expressing God's self through my hair and every other part of me. And you, not taking anything away from anybody. But, um, you know, I've always had, well, not always, but for a huge chunk of my life, I've had long hair and kept it that way. And when I got a little older, um, I remember somebody, uh, so you know how like you'll go to a friend's house, you know, a lady friend, or maybe you're a lady yourself listening to us and you like comb your hair in the shower or comb through condition or whatever. And you pull the hair off of the comb and you set it uh, on the wall of the shower or whatever so that you can clean it up later. Right. So the hair is kind of like stringy, straight looking hair. It's kind of a little soapy and just sits in the corner. Anyone else who sees that sees hair. This hair is from a long haired individual that is in the corner of the shower. Um, well, my hair is just as long. It just doesn't hang to my shoulders because it's grows in circles. You know what I mean? It just kind of stays where it's at. Just keeps growing in circles, which coils, if you will. Coils. Yeah. And this is how you get the cool looking Afro situation. Um, I think it's cool. Um, and, uh, the thing is, if I comb my hair, which I do, um, and I always have to, you know, uh, I have to do the same thing, right? So uh, I remember one time I went to um, camp. Uh, I might have been in the eighth grade, ninth grade, something like that. You know, comb my hair um, like normal. And then I like took the hair from the comb. This wasn't in the shower, but I took the hair from the comb and I threw it into the trash. You know what I mean? Um, and I just left it in like a wastebasket inside of the cabin where we were camping. And one of the people that came into the cabin, this person wasn't like being mean or being racist or anything like that. That's not what this story is about. This person was unfamiliar with hair not attached to my head, right? So when they see this clump of hair that looks like a little tiny afro that you can fit in the palm of your hand, looks at it and said something like, um, it looks, oh my God, look at this. It looks like, uh, like a bug created a nest or something, like something like really... That they, they weren't trying to say anything about me. Yeah, they but, didn't intend to be me. Right, but the way that I heard it was like, oh my God. And, the, the, you know, everyone else was clowning, was like, um, you know, what, whatever they were saying. I, I don't know. Um, and then over time, I heard things like, um, you know, when you have like thick black hair in the shower, when you come across that, a lot of people think that it's body hair, we'll say. Um, well, my hair is all thick and black. You know what I mean? And it's curly, right? So this thing kind of grew in me, this fear of leaving my hair anywhere, especially in the shower, because I didn't want anybody else to um, find my hair that came from my head. I have to comb my hair and take care of it, same as everybody. But I became so embarrassed about having to take care of my hair 
because it it sheds. It's just what human beings do. All of our hair sheds. It's it's a natural thing. But leaving it in the shower um, became like kind of traumatic for me. So much so to where as as recently as we'll call it 2000 and maybe 17, maybe 16, 17, I was in Vegas um, at a Hilton. I was there under like a diamond account, right? DJing for New Year's Eve. Um, and I found myself in the shower cleaning up my hair because I didn't want the housekeepers to come in after seeing me in that room to think that I had somehow violated or disrespected the bathroom and for them to be grossed out by my hair on my head. So it, it's something that stayed with me well into adulthood. Um, and again, growing up and getting those traumas of just not being white, just being different. And I'm sure that Hispanic people and, you know, everybody has their own versions of these stories, but I think that by us talking about it, we can kind of relate to each other. Now you went away to college. Tell me more about this. Q. Well, before going away to college, you have to understand, I said something earlier and I said it so fast, you may not have caught it. What's that? Almost everybody was black. Okay. I had teachers my whole life that weren't. But you have to understand with my life and the way that I view non-black people in America was very much shaped by my childhood. Mm -hmm. But think about it. The city, 82% black. But you can drive, right, from the most southern part of Detroit to out of Detroit is, I'm sure you guys have seen the movie Eight Mile. That distance is eight miles, literally, from the southernmost part of Detroit. So as far inward as you can go south mm -hmm. to north of the city, out into the north suburbs, eight miles, and you're out of the city. Mm -hmm. All of these teachers could have worked in the suburbs and not had to move, like literally cross the street, go across the street, across eight mile. You're not in Detroit anymore. The property value increases, your salary increases, the crime rate drops, like all of this was true. So these teachers that were not black, that chose to work in inner city Detroit public school schools had a really, really genuine affection and place in their heart for teaching and developing black children. Mm -hmm. Right. So even when I come across like teachers in the news now that just kind of don't care as much, like it's a job for them. But for my teachers, it wasn't just a job. These people were additions of your family, like ancillary parents, if you will, mm -hmm. um, Miss Pillars, Miss Howitz, Miss Moy, all very, very different. I love that you know their names. Ethnic backgrounds, right? Miss Marath, Mr. Torgensen, <laughs> all very, very different ethnic backgrounds, right? Some Asian, some white, but white, you know, you have German, you have Russian, Miss Lev, um, Mr. Karamaris, all of these people who look nothing like us, who really, really gave a damn about helping us become better people and really poured into that development um prepared me to get shocked by the world is what they did wow because they loved and put their arms around i remember miss moy's husband gave me my first set of comic books that got stolen out of my locker and i, I cried for a week because <laughs> i was really big into comic books as a child but you have to understand they set me up for the most massive culture shock in my life mm -hmm. because every white person I ever met loved me like out loud and intentionally. And I get to college and I'm going to tell this part of the story really fast. I get to college. I'm on a full scholarship to play football. So I just graduated from high school, full scholarship. I'm about to play college football. I'm on the emotional high. Mm -hmm. 
I am in the parking lot waiting for the shuttle to take me to my dorm for the first time. So this is day one. I have not seen my dorm yet. The shuttle picks me up in the parking lot. I get on. I sit down. I got on the shuttle first. And the only way I would have noticed this is if I got on the shuttle first. Four uh, white young ladies got on the shuttle after me. Three of them made it their business to not only sit as far away from me as possible, but to make fun of the one who had to take the only remaining seat by the time they got on, which was next to me. And from the parking lot to our dorm rooms, they just made fun of her. And she was not only hurt, but embarrassed. And I remember reaching out and touching her and her not being startled, which was comforting. And she looked at me like embarrassed for her friends. And I just told her, you don't have to apologize for them. I'm cool. But it was the first time I realized that things were different. And it was the first time of many times that I would be reminded of so. Mm.